Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Governments and tech platforms have moved quickly to take action against Russian state media since the invasion of Ukraine on February 24th. But what frameworks exist in international law that could inform our thinking about these complicated questions at the intersection of speech and human rights? To answer that question, I spoke to Vivek Krishnamurthy, the Samuelson Glushko Professor of Law at the University of Ottawa and Director of the Samuelson Glushko Canadian Internet Policy and Public Interest Clinic. Vivek is currently a fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, a faculty associate at the Bertman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard, and a senior associate of the Human Rights Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Here's Vivek. Yeah, my name is Vivek Krishnamurthy, and I'm the Samuelson Glushko Professor of Law at the University of Ottawa. I have a very sort of broad-ranging interest in the impact of new technologies on human rights. So that's sort of what I've been looking at for years um, across lots of different technologies and lots of different rights. I'm also especially interested in the emerging understanding of what role businesses play um, with regard to human rights. And that's really important in tech because, of course, the tech sector is one where private enterprise dominates innovation. Um, so those are sort of the questions I've been thinking about, especially with, when it comes to free expression, privacy, um, and other related rights. So with the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, you have a piece that came out on the Center for International Governance Innovations website with the headline, Putin's illegal war has gotten an easy ride from big tech. Are Russia's RT and Sputnik spreading war propaganda? Restrictions are already in place and arguably apply here. So what part of international law were you referencing in this piece? The International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights uh, which goes by the abbreviation ICCPR, it's perhaps the most important international human rights treaty, or certainly one of the three most important. This was negotiated back in the 1960s, um, and it's a treaty that has very wide acceptance around the world. Article 20 of this treaty basically states that any propaganda for war shall be prohibited by law. So it struck me as we were having this debate about RT, Sputnik, other Russian state media and also Russian government activity on social media of various kinds, is there a way that we can use existing international legal prohibition to structure the response of companies to this content and also ultimately of government? So, you know, as often happens in content moderation, other tech policy debates, right? Something happens in the world. People are looking for ways to respond to it. And often the decision-making is a little ad hoc, People think about it from an ethical or moral perspective, which is certainly one way of thinking about things, and I wouldn't discourage that. Um, but oftentimes, we can reach into the law and find you know, legal instruments that can guide that decision-making. So really, the aim of the piece was to make clear that this provision exists, that it's potentially relevant, and to try to help it, you know, apply it to the situation. Tell me a little bit more about this particular uh, law. What, what was the ICCPR trying to do? So to really explain this, um, we need to dive into a little bit of history. I haven't done the primary historical research myself. There's a great scholar at the University of Sussex named Michael Kearney, who wrote this book about the prohibition of propaganda in international law about 15 years ago. 
And, you know, in the book, he laments how this provision has basically been ignored, right? It just hasn't gotten much attention from scholars or anyone. But, you know, his book, which is a fascinating read, I'd highly recommend it um, to anyone with an interest um, in these topics right now, sort of um, chronicles the origin of this provision, you know, at the end of the Second World War. There was this recognition at the end of the Second World War that propaganda played a very significant part in unleashing the Second World War. And during the Nuremberg and Tokyo trials, there were several prosecutions of propagandists that were brought. And, you know, those prosecutions really focused on a couple of things, right? On the fact that these propagandists had created the conditions for an aggressive war, to occur by, you know, whipping up their populace to be ready to support um, aggressive acts by, you know, the Axis forces in World War II. Part of the charges were also about the suppression of legitimate and free information um, in Nazi Germany and in Imperial Japan that would have prevent, you know, allowed for the um, development of alternative points of view regarding those countries' aggression. So, you know, in the 1950s and 1960s, there was this sort of clear view that propaganda was dangerous, that propaganda had a, played an important role in starting World War II. And if you look back at the debates, it's fascinating that the delegates at these international conventions were animated by trying to prevent propaganda from igniting World War III. And here we are today, you know, President Biden last week raised that possibility, right? That, you know, if, if we don't manage this, right, certain escalation paths could lead to a global conflict. So that's where the origins of this provision lie. There was extremely heated debate, right, between basically three groups of countries um, during the negotiation of this provision. The former Soviet bloc countries, let's call it the Western liberal democracies, and then the newly decolonized countries of the global south, right? You know, this sort of at the end of the Second World War. So, you know, India and lots of countries in, in sub-Saharan Africa and, and Latin America became independent. So the Soviet Union was the prime advocate of a, some kind of prohibition on propaganda. And there was a lot of debate, right, that ultimately resulted in this formulation being the treaty. And if you read it carefully, right, it's not an absolute prohibition. It does, it's not like the prohibition on slavery in international law, where it says slavery is prohibited, right? It says any propaganda for war shall be prohibited by law. So it suggests that governments need to do something, right? They need to enact laws that prohibit war propaganda, whatever that means. And you know, we can talk about the interpretive difficulties and how we define this. I will say that mostly governments in the Western world have not legislated um, provisions to implement this. And in fact, you know, the United States has been, you know, very, very suspicious of this provision and has sort of made what's called a reservation to the ICCPR, basically saying that, you know, we interpret this consistent with the First Amendment, which requires us to do very little beyond the sort of American legal test for incitement, right, which is a pretty demanding test. I happen to have open in front of me a paragraph from a dissent of a Soviet judge in the acquittals of uh, two indicted organizations in the Nuremberg trials, the Reich cabinet and the general staff high command uh, and three Nazi defendants. Uh, this is from judge uh, Iona Nikachenko, who wrote the dissemination of provocative lies and the systematic deception of public opinion were as necessary to Hitlerites for the realization of their plans as were the production of armaments and the drafting of military plans. 
Without propaganda founded on the total eclipse of the freedom of the press and of speech, it would not have been possible for German fascism to realize its aggressive intentions, lay the groundwork, and then to put to practice the war crimes and the crimes against humanity. Do you think we're seeing something similar go on with Russia at the moment, this total eclipse of the freedom of the press and of speech? I mean, in a word, yes. And I think this is the great historical irony of the moment, right? The Soviet Union was, you know, the greatest victim of the Second World War. They lost more people than any other country, right? I think it's 40 million people, Soviet people died in the Second World War. So the Soviet Union was the prime advocate, right, in the post-war period of a pretty comprehensive ban on war propaganda. Now, of course, by that time, though, some of the interests of the Soviet state had you know, shifted from merely preventing World War III to also preventing Western ideas and influence from entering the Soviet Union. But you know, what's really interesting is that if you look at um, former Soviet countries, these are the countries that have enacted um, you know, these legal bans on war propaganda. And amazingly, Russia, the Russian criminal code, makes it a criminal offense to plan, prepare for, embark on, or conduct a war of aggression, right? Or to, you know, incite a war of aggression. Russia has this criminal code provision that, of course, they're not enforcing. And I would argue, to just go back to your question, that yes, we are seeing a dramatic closing of, of civic space in Russia, right? I mean, I think one of, you know, other people have, have noted, I think, you know, Fiona Hill um, made this point, uh, who's much more expert on Russia than I am, that, you know, for much of his reign, Putin has actually tolerated quite a vibrant, uh, you know, relatively vibrant from authoritarian state, public sphere in Russia, where you could access many sources of international information. Um, certainly you couldn't protest, but, you know, certain discussions were had. Um, and we're seeing that close very rapidly, right, with the beginning of the war in Ukraine, with, of course, the blocking of platforms, with the blocking of independent media outlets, right? So, And this goes back to, again, those early post-war understandings of propaganda, again, as not just, you know, the advocacy for aggressive war, but that closing, I think, is really important to keep in mind, right, that we're talking about, you know, state action that is trying to limit public discussion and uh, the spread of information so that the only information available is the one that suggest, you know, uh, supports the warlike ambitions of the current regime. So even since you published this piece, which is March the 12th, there have been more significant moves by the social media platforms to limit the distribution of Russian state media, including RT, Sputnik, across Facebook, Instagram, you know, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube. Do you think there's still work to be done? Do you think the platforms still have work to do in this regard? Uh, so this is a very rapidly evolving space. You know, I think for some time, platforms have been pursuing, you know, I, I guess what some people in the lingo call the non-binary policy levers to deal with state media. So it's been, you know, I, I think it's actually almost two years now since, you know, what was then Facebook, now Meta, decided to downrank uh, Russian state media content, right? Um, and with the initiation of hostilities, we saw a number um, of platforms move quite aggressively to, again, further downrank, to label content, to demonetize it, um, et cetera, right? I think the big shift that we have seen 
you know, in the last few days is a decision by YouTube to go further, right? To go just beyond the the sort of non-binary policy options to actually deciding that they would block or deplatform RT and Sputnik content globally. That to me is a watershed moment. And of course, you know, there's lots of different equities here that the platforms are trying to balance. So on the one hand, you know, there's an art. So let's accept it's hard to define what war is and what propaganda is, but let's just assume for a moment that RT and Sputnik are spreading this stuff. Well, there's still an interest in knowing what, you know, uh, the Russians are, are thinking about, right? What is being said? So there's clearly, you know, the freedom of expression at the international level, as it does in the United States, includes a right to receive ideas and information. So, you know, any uh, platform action that uh, completely bans the availability of that content certainly has an impact on, on viewers in terms of being informed and knowing what's going on, what the other side is thinking. At the same time, platforms are trying to stay open in Russia, right? And they're trying to calibrate their responses to various forms of Russian governmental abuse of their platforms in such a way that they don't get completely blocked, right? And I think this has been a fine line that they're trying to maintain, one that I think is ultimately untenable, because it seems pretty clear to me that the direction of travel that Russia is headed towards is towards basically having total control of their domestic information environment, right? I think they are very clearly on a pathway of trying to block all forms of dissent, all forms of independent information. Um, So I'm not sure that the platforms, uh, their attempts to calibrate these responses are going to be successful in view of where Russia seems to be going. Are there other uh, precedents or other kind of uh, international uh, legal considerations that have been made in this space? I'm thinking in, in particular of the OSCE report on propaganda and freedom of the media. The OSCE is the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. This is a really interesting international body that formed during the Cold War, uh, during the period of detente in the 1970s. And there was was something called the Helsinki Final Act, which is kind of this agreement between the Soviet Union and a lot of Western countries on sort of uh, unwinding the Cold War to some extent, de-escalating it and increasing understanding. And one of the big pieces of the OSCE's mandate coming out of the Helsinki um, uh, Final Act is around information, free expression, communication, et cetera. So the OSCE um, has a a special representative for media freedom, which is kind of analogous to the role played by the UN Special Rapporteur on Free Expression, formerly David Kaye, now Irene Khan, body that has sort of, uh, you know, expertise and convening power on these issues. So about in 2016, I just have to read part of the introduction of this report, right? Which is that, you know, it's a report to help states in formulating policy responses toward the current spread of propaganda intertwined with the conflict in Ukraine in 2016. So, you know, um, as we were sort of discussing before we started, right? Yes, we are in a hot war that, you know, uh, started two weeks ago, uh, almost three weeks ago now, which is an escalation of a conflict between Russia and Ukraine that's been going on for eight years, right? Since Russia invaded Crimea um, and detached the eastern districts of Ukraine, right, into the two self-proclaimed people's republics. And, and, and certainly propag- Russian propaganda around the 2014 armed conflict never since has been seen 
um, as problematic. So the OSCE put together this report, you know, again, a, a few years ago, trying to think about what do we do about this, right? And it's what's known in the lingo as a non-paper, which means it's kind of a discussion, you know, trial balloon paper rather than the policy of the OSCE member states. Um, you know, and there's a few important pieces in it, right? I think one is sort of a recognition of the dangers of propaganda to free media and free expression, right? And I think that, uh, again, the thing about propaganda is that it's like disinformation, right? It pollutes the information ecosystem. It makes it hard to tell what's true and what's not. Americans might call it low-value speech in American sort of free expression discourse, a free speech doctrine, right? But it does sort of pollute the information environment and require a response, right? And it can clearly create the conditions for war. But, you know, at the same time, there's countervailing risks as to how we respond to it, right? That, again, the word propaganda is an inconvenient word because it has this pejorative sense that we have attributed to it, Right. When someone is speaking in a, um, you know, in a way that's trying to convince other people without resort to factual argumentation, we call that propaganda colloquially, right? So the, the use of that term in the law um, is, is difficult. But of course, as with other information disorders, I think there's this concern that the cure is sometimes worse than the disease, that we can't narrowly target propagandistic um, activities without burdening other legitimate expression or creating precedents that are dangerous in the hands of authoritarian governments, right? You know, it can slip down into this moral relativistic situation where, you know, well, how do we define propaganda? You know, what you're saying is, I think it's propaganda, so I'm going to ban your, I'm going to ban the BBC, right? I, because, you know, um, that might be how uh, Vladimir Putin uh, views that, right? So one of the more significant things that has taken place in the tech policy space in the last couple of weeks since this invasion began happened last week when some leaked content moderation guidance from Meta uh, was made public in a report from Reuters. And the report itself was, was updated, but it's, I think, safe to say that the initial report spread very quickly and created an opening for uh, the Russian government to you know, uh, position itself as taking action against Meta uh, almost defensively. Uh, they claimed that Meta was allowing uh, extremist behavior and calls for violence against Russians. What, what did you make of that incident? And does any of this uh, legal apparatus help you think about that particular episode? Yeah. So I think we're talking about the report that Meta was relaxing enforcement of its sort of policy against uh, incitement to violence in Ukraine and neighboring Eastern European countries. So to permit people in those countries to basically say, you know, kill the Russian soldiers or words to that effect, while maintaining a ban on saying, uh, advocating for the violence against Russian civilians. So as with many other sort of um, aspects of sort of tech company content policies, you know, there is a sense of trying to respond in real time to what's happening. And a lot of it feels ad hoc and convenient, right, rather than based on deep principle. And, you know, I think we can sort of trace this conversation back in many ways to what happened with Cloudflare after Charlottesville, right, when Matthew Prince very, you know, famously declared that he would no longer do business with the neo-Nazis um, and the white nationalists, right? And, you know, there's a sense that 
well, this might be the right decision, but I'm concerned that it's just coming out of thin air, that there's no policy rationale that underpins it. So I guess part of what I was hoping to do in, in the piece that I published is to say that, okay, if we can, if we can take existing legal frameworks and use them to guide our decision-making, we can end up in a much better place and have coherence and actually be able to push back on that sort of Russian argument that's saying that this is just convenient. You're carrying the water of the United States or whoever else in this conflict rather than being a principal actor. So as it happens, the Article 20 framework is really helpful in thinking about how platforms should respond to all of these things, right? We know that international law has a problem with war propaganda. And that has been interpreted to mean advocacy of aggressive war. And we have a war of aggression in Russia. This is an easy case for the application of this prohibition, because there's a pretty strong international consensus that Russia has started an illegal war of aggression. And we can, just, we can point to the UN General Assembly resolution, right, where only four other countries, all pariah states, voted with Russia, right? The international consensus is clearly that Russia has um, declared an illegal war. So, you know, the, the um, Article 20 prohibition on war propaganda has been interpreted as applying to wars of aggression, but it clearly excludes advocacy of self-defense, right? So the best international legal commentary says, if you are, you know, engaged in advocacy or propaganda or whatever, in exercise of the right of a state to self-defense, you know, the ban on propaganda does not apply to you. And this is a great way of, um, of, of basically taking Meta's policy decision and applying to a framework, which is to say that there is something distinguishable between Russian, Russia advocating uh, for the use of force in Ukraine, which violates international law, versus Ukrainians saying, hey, let's go and use lethal force against Russian invaders. I mean, first of all, the underlying use of force by Ukraine is lawful under international law. Like Ukraine has a right to defend itself. That's clear, right? There's a pretty strong international legal consensus on that. So similarly, um, the advocacy by people in Ukraine to go and use violence against the Russian military is justifiable. And I think if Meta had grounded its decision in those international legal interpretations, I think it would have gotten a lot less pushback, right? So, I mean, looking at sort of the tech policy commentariat on Twitter, right, I think the reaction was, you know, pretty negative. It felt like yet another instance of a tech company just sort of, you know, uh, feeling which direction the wind was blowing rather than engaged in um, engaging principle decision-making. But I think that's sort of the enduring value of law generally and of trying to attach yourself to the law as you decide what's permitted and what's not on your platform. It's interesting. I've seen other commentators uh, suggest similar things that some of the platforms have, have seemed to make decisions, you know, somewhat in deference perhaps to national governments uh, that have, you know, of course, called on them to take more action or what have you. And then it might've been better to rather do as you say, which is to, you know, defer to international human rights law or to uh, some broader human rights standard? I mean, you know, I think it would be fine, uh, or it's certainly defensible as a sort of moral stance to say, we are going to choose a side. And, you know, let's take, um, you know, most big tech platforms are based in the United States. So to say that we're going to follow the policy of the United States here, certainly one defensible way of making a decision 
That said, I think it's perhaps not the best way for tech companies that that operate on a global scale and who wish to operate globally to basically say that they're going to be guided by the policymaking and policy direction of their home state or of any given state, right? Which is, I think, why there has been this groundswell of opinion. I think David Kay, as a former UN Special Rapporteur on Free Expression, played a huge part in this, right? In sort of making this argument that technology companies ought to look to international human rights law for guidance on, on these kinds of questions, right? And I think, I mean, obviously that predates David's mandate. You know, the work of the Global Network Initiative, which was founded in 2010, is also devoted to this notion, right? That international human rights law should guide how companies react to censorship requests and also to government demands for user data. Just a couple of last questions. You know, one thing I've been curious about is the way that certain companies have handled or have not handled state accounts that are associated with, say, a particular embassies or consulates. Um, the Russian state has so many Twitter handles that are associated with particular national embassies or consulates or uh, other types of bits of its uh, state apparatus. And each of them is essentially operating as kind of a state media outlet or channel. And in some cases spreading, you know, what is very obviously disinformation or propaganda. What do you think the platform should be doing about those types of accounts? I think this is a extremely difficult question where reasonable people can disagree. Here's a way that we can think about this. RT and Sputnik, right, are both state media outlets that operate under the guise of being traditional media when they actually are not, right? So uh, Phil Howard and Mona um, Elsa at the Oxford Internet Institute wrote this great paper couple of years ago about the organizational behavior of RT. And it asks the question, you know, not what's on RT on any given day, you know, is this piece, is this story propaganda or not? It rather looks at the organization and its structure, right? And finds that, you know, even though RT kind of holds itself out to be a media outlet that is like another cable news channel like CNN or MSNBC, it's an instrument of the Russian state, right? And that you know, its journalists are hired not for their journalistic skills, but for their, you know, adherence with an incentive system that basically seeks to push the Russian government view on things with pervasive Russian government control. Okay, so what's the relevance of this to the question of how should a platform like Twitter deal with official state accounts? I think the sort of mode of presentation matters on a platform, right? When someone holds them, when an organization holds themselves as a media outlet as opposed to an official government outlet, right? The impact of what they say on the public conversation on that platform and beyond is quite different, right? So RT seems to be reporting as fact that Ukraine had a biological weapons program, which is obviously untrue, right? Whereas if we tweet, you know, Sergey Lavrov saying that on Twitter, the foreign minister, we see that it's an assertion by a Russian government official. It doesn't have that imprimatur of coming from something that resembles a media organization. Now, I honestly don't know what they should do with these particular accounts. I think there is a case to be made for deplatforming them, as was done with Donald Trump. You know, arguably, the information and, and the false information they are spreading is more dangerous 
than Trump's tweets on January 6th. Again, when Russian government officials are you know, making these spurious claims about Ukraine's biological weapons program um, and getting distribution of that on social media, you know, that's quite different from, again, the same Russian government official's statement as carried by the New York Times, contextualized in reporting that says there's no evidence about this, right? But this is a hard call. I don't envy the people at platforms who are going to have to make this call. I would just urge them as they think about this, you know, something that I would urge them to do in advance is to probably draw a principled line up front, right? Draw the red line informed by Article 20 of the ICCPR, right? And say, here's where we think you're going to cross the line, right? So set that expectation out front so that when you do enforce, again, it's not viewed as an ad hoc decision. It will be seen then as informed by a principle that you set up front. So if Twitter's executives or Nick Clegg called you uh, from Meta tomorrow, um, what do you think you'd, you'd say to them? What would be the kind of first bit of advice that you'd give? I think we've now clearly established that platforms are not neutral actors. So we don't have to have that part of the conversation, which we would have had, you know, um, three or four years ago. I think I would tell them that, first of all, that this body of law is very helpful, right? That thinking about what led to the development of the international legal instruments against uh, propaganda, right? This concern about how the spread of false information could unleash worldwide, World War III, right? What's uh, very much animated this. So again, given the current situation, just awareness of, of this body of law is going to be quite useful. But again, to align policy and decision-making to the extent possible, right, to the requirements of law. So I think, again, you know, and we've seen this more broadly in sort of how platforms set their content policies, right, trying to seek a way of aligning themselves with international human rights standards. Now, one thing that is different here is that there's a war going on. International law recognizes that wartime is quite different from peacetime. And it may well be, I mean, it's crazy to contemplate this, but it may be necessary for platforms to develop policies around what happens with regard to interstate armed conflicts. So, you know, all of the platforms have had a reckoning over their role in, let's call it civil conflict, right? In, in Myanmar and in Ethiopia and many other places, right? But there's been internal conflicts and platforms have been used to foment genocide within a country. What I don't think anyone has contemplated in the tech world, right, is uh, what do we do? You know, we thought interstate war was a thing of the past. Clearly not, right? And if we take Russia's assertions at face value that they have grander ambitions to remake the security architecture of Eastern Europe, I think it's time that we do some proactive policy thinking about how we're going to deal with this in the future. Vivek, thank you very much for speaking to me about this. Oh, it's been my pleasure. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to my guest. Thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.